You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're either listening or watching this podcast on the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for your support. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or YouTube so you never miss out on any of the content that the team here at IC puts out. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. If you haven't already, it takes hardly any time, and I know it helps us out a good deal. Also, speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us, so that's why I have to remind everyone about Johnny T-Shirt. Locally and alumni-owned and operated, Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to place for all things Carolina Apparel. When I went to this game this past weekend, I was just that Johnny T-shirt. They hooked it up. They've got it all. The football T-shirts, the jerseys, the hats. As the weather gets cooler, they got the long sleeves, the sweatshirts, the jackets. You name it, they've got it. And they also have the best prices and even better customer service. And don't forget, Inside Carolina premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, we've got a loaded show because today I've got my guys, like every week, joining me, former Letterman. Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, North Carolina wins a huge game against Virginia Tech by a score of 56 to 45. I think somebody just scored again while I just said that. But the Tar Heels, they stay perfect. 3 0 in conference play. Mike, starting with you, what were your biggest takeaways from this game? Uh, we obviously ran the ball better, and I think a lot of credit goes to the wide receiver core for that. Um, the blocking down field was exceptional, um, and they were able to take advantage of, frankly, a very depleted Virginia Tech secondary. Um, so the running game, you know, 209, 299 rushing yards is always impressive, no matter who it's against. Um, I think they were, we were benefit a lot uh, by the fact that Virginia Tech ran some pretty vanilla looks on defense. And obviously, again, they're depleted in the secondary. So there's not much they could do defensively um, since the linebackers didn't have that, uh, didn't have that backside support in the run game. Um, so that, that was number one. Number two was I thought our offensive line did a really good job on the first level in terms of their blocking assignments. Um, I, was, I was looking at Izudu especially since he was coming back. This was going to be his first game back. Um, I wanted to see how he was going to play. We'll get to his performance later on. I thought overall it was positive, but there's, there's some little things that he needs to work on that are just the result of having not played for so long um, and this being his first action. Um, but again, I thought it, wide receiver blocking downfield, the running game generally – uh, looked great. Again, big props to the wide receivers for that. And the offensive line on their first level assignments looked real solid. EJ, what about you? What were your biggest takeaways from this game? I'll probably say the biggest takeaway is uh, that we're not as deep on the defensive side of the ball as I thought we were, especially not uh, on the defensive line. I mean, Vo Havoc not being there, uh, I knew it was going to be, we weren't going to maybe show up like we have and put the, the great performance up against the run like we usually do without the big key part of our defense and especially our defensive line not being there. 
But to give up the amount of yards that we did, and I think on some plays it's just kind of getting manhandled up front, and to see the same plays, the same formations that they're consistently getting in, and that's not recognizing that and performing better on that, that, that definitely was kind of disappointing. That's another takeaway. I, I don't think that we adjusted well to that. I think uh, when, when Hendon Hooker came into the game, I think he added a, a different aspect to them, their ability to pass the ball a little bit better, and I think that hurt us because we've been so hunkered down for the run that we got bit on a lot of the play-action pass. And I think their tight end in particular really dominated the game. He dominated them. He set the edge blocking uh, on a lot of those jet sweeps. They're like, uh, able to get outside. And you saw in some of their longer runs uh, by Herbert, he's downfield making a block. He's catching the ball. He's running over people. He's actually making contacts with the defender. So I'll say that, one, we're not as deep as we thought we are. Two, I think we got out physical. Three, we need to do a better job of recognizing certain formations and what teams are trying to get us in and adjust better. Or you're going to see what we saw Saturday. Virginia Tech saw what was working, and they stayed in that formation for the most of the second half. And you see that they were successful on almost every drive that they had. Yeah, my biggest takeaways from this game were was, first off, Carolina, they have – the best running back duo in the country in Michael Carter and Javante Williams. And I think when you look at that duo, it's such an easy formula to replicate on a week to week basis that you have to like Carolina's chances going forward. When, if a game's going to get into a, a shootout, I think you have to like Carolina's chances. Um, I thought Sam Howell, he looked to have his swagger back. We're going to talk about Sam Howell a little later. And then defensively, Carolina they have a lot of things that they could work on. They were missing a lot of key players, but this defense with the offense, this offense performed like I thought they could perform at the beginning of the year. And if they're going to perform like that, they don't have to be perfect. They just have to be timely. You look at how they started the game, three, three and outs, the first four drives I thought was impressive. And EJ, like you mentioned at the end of the game, they were just on E, but they had, played so well in the beginning of the game getting off the field that Carolina was able to build that kind of cushion now it was kind of a game of runs where Carolina would build the cushion it would get back Carolina would build it up again but I think the defense showed me enough while it was a a pretty bad game they would they would be the first person first people to admit that it was a pretty bad game but I think my biggest takeaway from this game defensively is Carolina just has to have a timely defense they don't have to um be this be the superior defense but um Mike it felt as if UNC was kind of in this like wait and see mode because it wasn't playing the first two games with a healthy offensive line Joshua Azudu like you mentioned he makes his season debut and Carolina puts up 656 total offensive yards I think we saw the death of the lunch pail defense from Virginia Tech. I, that's going to be hard for them to keep uh, toting that slogan around after, after that performance. But what did you see specifically up front along the offensive line that led to that kind of success, both protecting Sam Howell and also giving guys like Michael Carter and Javante Williams huge running lanes? Well, again, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to bag on the offensive line for this this game. I mean, what I'll say is, you know, I'll, I'll give a compliment sandwich here. So a positive, again, like I mentioned before, was that they played very well on the first level. Um, that means their 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 defensive line assignments in double teams, their single blocks uh, on the front side of inside and outside zones, uh, that sort of stuff. They did they did very well on that. Um, they controlled the line of scrimmage, I thought, very well. Um, they did not, however. 
across the board get off on their second level assignments very well. What Michael Carter and Javante Williams were able to do because the first level was getting manhandled so well, they were able to beat free runners on the second level. So every, again, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, um, but the, uh, almost every offensive run is designed just because it's a numbers game to have one free runner. There's one guy you always got to beat. We call that the guy you got to book. All right. So you always got to book one guy. Um, Carolina's problem against Virginia Tech was, was that they had two and three guys they were having to book. Um, and, and if there were three free runners, two of them were on the front side of the play, which is problematic. Um, Virginia Tech, was their defense was gassed, um, especially in the first half, because Carolina was putting together drives and was running the ball down their throat. Um, they were also not in a position to really throw Carolina any exotic looks. So I would, I would expect and hope that our offensive line would be able to control the first level the way that they did because they really seen some pretty vanilla fronts. There was nothing spectacular being thrown at them. This did not look like a Bud Foster defense. And I think a lot of that was because the linebackers and defensive line didn't have second level help in, in run support. Um, they didn't have safeties and corners that could come down and thud in the run game. Those linebackers really had to be the safety valve um, because they were playing with a walk-on and a third stringer back there at safety. They were playing with backup corners. I mean, Virginia Tech was severely depleted um, in, the, in the defensive backfield. So I think that ultimately played the Carolina's advantage. So what the, what the offensive line did very well was they controlled the line of scrimmage. What they didn't do so well was they didn't get on their second level assignments. Um, Josh Zudu specifically looked like this was the first game he'd played. Um, he transitioned there. He played more left tackle than left guard, which I was surprised to see. Um, and we had a lot of offensive linemen get snaps. Uh, Ross Martin, uh, you know, the great and powerful Ross Martin actually gave me a, a breakdown today and I'll read it to you here. Um, our, give me one second to find it. Our, um, our offensive line, um, rotated in, I believe, I believe seven guys. Let's see here. Here's, I got, I got the numbers right here. Um, we had Marcus McKeith and Brian Anderson, Jordan Tucker, Izudu, Richards, Monolis, Johnson, and William Barnes all got snaps. And we're looking at 68, 68, 67, 59, 52. Monolis got 25. Uh, Johnson got four and Barnes got one, right? So that's a lot of guys rotating in to the lineup. Um, what I was encouraged to see was with all that rotation and with all those guys getting in the game and getting looks. And again, some of that was on jumbo packages and whatnot. But with shaking up the, uh, the, the offensive line in the way that we did, we didn't see a whole lot of uh, fall off. There wasn't a lot of drop off uh, in terms of performance. Now, Josh's performance specifically, when I talk about game one jitters, when I talk about how you perform in the first game back, um, he missed a couple of things that ultimately didn't cost us, thank goodness. Um, but he pulled around. I remember one time he was playing left guard. We ran 36 power. He completely whiffed on the Mike linebacker, who's his assignment as the puller. Um, the reason that that 36 power, and it was, it ended up being, uh, I believe, uh, uh, I think it was Javante got us down close to the goal goal line um and it might have been our 21st point or a 14th point um as our second or third score of the game um running back got us down close to the to the goal line got us the first and goal from i think the three or the four yard line and that was because of the uh, uh the front side double team on that 36 power so your right tackle right guard were able to double that three technique to the backside linebacker josh pulled around and he completely whiffed 
on the Mike linebacker, but it didn't matter, again, because our running backs did such a good job all day of beating those free runners. The Mike there became the free runner, and he wasn't supposed to be. Uh, but our running backs, again, did a phenomenal job of beating those guys. He also played pretty high. I, this is actually two plays later. I remember seeing him play pretty high down on the goal line. He played high all day long. So his pad level was relatively poor. Um, until the second half. I saw him make a lot of adjustments in the second half, and they actually ended up playing pretty well at left tackle after making that transition mid-game. Um, so those are the things that I was both encouraged and a little discouraged by based on what I saw. Uh, offense, again, as a whole, I think EJ sort of touched on it. There, there were some problems. I think the biggest problem I saw from a team perspective is just we had a real hard time finishing that game. Um, thank goodness we had a three-touchdown lead for most of the, most of the game. Yeah, and uh, I like the point you made about when Azudu whiffed and Williams made a miss. It seems like Javante's always guaranteed to make at least the first guy miss, and I feel like that's something that Carter has kind of added to his game, that patience and that vision where he, he looks like a more patient running back this year, and he's able to find those gaps more easily. But I wanted to go back to one of your key takeaways. Uh, I thought you made a great point about the wide receivers blocking out wide. Um, as a former receiver, that's something I know a lot about. And unless the defense is stacked in the box, you guys up front are getting those like five, 10 yard runs. And if a play is going to spring out, it's because the receivers are actually yeah. blocking downfield. So when you see a guy like Michael Carter going 62 yards untouched, it's a, it's a good combination between the offensive line and then also Bo Corrales basically throwing. Uh, his guy out the club and I think Bo Corrales is definitely a guy worth mentioning when you're talking about the receivers blocking because it's not something that's flashy it's not something that's going to show up on the box score but those are the little plays that are going to add up and make the difference for Carolina when they're trying to pick up these wins and EJ defensively Carolina they were missing guys like Raymond Vahasic, Storm Duck and Jaquarius Conley how much do you think those guys absences led to the struggles for the Carolina defense what can they do if those guys continue to miss time? And another thing that I thought was interesting with those guys out, it, it looked like Carolina was struggling to make rotations and getting guys on the field late and having to take timeouts at some points where it just seemed like they couldn't figure out the personnel groupings they were having to go in. So kind of, kind of, how do you think the injuries have played into that? I think it's exactly what you said. I think, um, I think these guys are ready to play. They know the game plan, but I mean, it's just kind of the flow of the game that you don't really get, especially with the amount of time that we've had off between games. I mean, you, you don't get the flow of, of looking and knowing when the personnel group is going in or where you're supposed to be in, or if it's dime or nickel or special blitz package that was set aside for you, you, you don't know when you're supposed to go in. So you're, you're, you're kind of used to kind of looking, looking there, sitting in the days. I know that's what happened to me, my uh, red shirt freshman year, when it was time for me to go in on a special package, I'm just, kind of used to other guys going in. So I think that's why you saw some of those timeouts, some of those penalties uh, when they were trying to speed up the tempo a little bit. But um, other than other than that, I, I don't think our defensive performance can really be blamed on those guys not being there. I do think that they would have probably shown a little bit more experience than just a little the game reps that they have. So um, I honestly think that a lot of this, the, the bad situations we got called in, especially some of the big plays that we gave up, <clears throat> was because we were so committed to stopping the run. I mean, a lot of those play-action passes, a lot of that misdirection, it just happened because we were so hunkered down and ready to 
play the run. And I think over committing because um, Raven Vahasic wasn't there and we had to give as much support for our guys up front as we could. I mean, you have guys who are used to playing 30, 40 snaps a game now playing 60, 70 snaps a game. And I mean, that's going to be tough from anybody, especially as you saw towards the end of the game, these guys start breaking down. There's no one in to rotate in. These guys are, are used to just playing three, four, maybe five plays at a time. And you have Virginia Tech driving the ball down the field. I mean, literally running the ball down our throats the whole second half of the game. These guys are getting tired. They're getting gassed. They don't have anyone else to come in. Even in the secondary, these guys are, are used to coming in on passing situations, specialty situations. Now you're asking them to come out here, tackle running backs, tackle the tight end, who obviously is not is, is on a, in a different weight program than everyone else is because he was just knocking our guys around. And I don't like to see tight ends do that as a defensive end. But, I mean, it's just – it's things like that that really play into it. I don't think these guys are any less prepared. I don't think they're any less talented. But it's just certain things that go into the ebb and flow of a game, especially when you're playing a Virginia Tech team that's ACC competition, a team that we've seen, and a team who obviously over the last few years we've developed quite a rivalry with. So I think that I think that if this continues to go on, I do think these guys will get that experience and some of those hiccups will go away. So I'm not too worried. I do think the guys, uh, I do think the guys uh, play relatively well. Um, I think it was overall just not a a good day for our defense, but as you mentioned, they were timely. Uh, It was a game of, of, of burst, a game of spurts and we, we held up and, and we did enough to win the game. And that's what it's about winning the game. EJ, at what point do you think that we actually had a tackling problem? The first two games of the year on our normal, on a normal schedule, right, normal conditions, mm-hmm. you can typically – you can attribute at missed tackles, missed blocks, high pad level, like as an offensive lineman, right, our footwork's maybe a little off. Maybe we're missing some, um, some, some blitz pickups, some blitz keys, things like that. All that stuff just kind of comes with getting the first, second game jitters out and really getting accustomed to playing football again. But at what point do you pull the ripcord and say, uh-oh, we actually do have a tackling problem versus it's just early in the season, we had a wonky offseason, these guys didn't have a ton of prep time, uh, that sort of thing, when it comes to tackling. I, I think we've had a tackling problem longer than this season, man. I mean, <laughs> you, I mean, and, and really I would can, agree. Yeah. <laughs> you're looking at this game and I mean, coach Longos, he, he he's, he's putting these, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, coaches, they're, they're putting these people in the right position. They're there. They're just out of position. They're reaching and they're trying to tackle with their arms. They're getting ran through. They're not being strong at the point of attack. They're not running through tackles like they're seriously trying to get someone on the ground. And that's just something that we've seen. I, I, I don't even – I don't know if that's a, a toughness thing, a mental thing, but – or maybe because some of these guys aren't used to playing that they're in this position and they're like, oh, shoot, I'm actually in the right position. Now I have, have to make the tackle. But you're seeing guys – you're seeing guys that have been playing for the last couple, two, three years – who get significant snaps and who are lettermen who are out here whiffing on tackle. So I, I do, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a problematic problem that's going on through our program. I didn't want to get, I didn't want to make the alliteration too bad right there. So I tried to think of something to break it up last <laughs> minute, but no, it's, it's, it's a, it's been playing in our program for the last couple of years. And, and, and at this point, I, I don't know how to fix it, man. I mean, is there, there are only so many drills you can do. Yeah. It has been a wonky off season, but I mean, Tackling is the same as tackling has always been. Offensive schemes change, offensive techniques change, but the art of tackling, getting someone on, on the ground, it's the same thing that you're going to do at 12 years old that you're going to do when you're playing your last game in the NFL at 35, 36 years old. So it's just, it just kind of blows my mind, man. Yeah. Um, for the missed tackles, Carolina missed 
19 tackles yesterday. It was Chaz Surratt missed one. Uh, Hollins missed one. Rucker missed one. Tamon Fox missed one. Zach Gill missed one. Trey, uh, Trey Morrison missed one. Don Chapman missed one. Tyron Hopper missed two. Jeremiah Gemmel missed two. Eugene Asante missed two. Patrice Renee missed three. And then Cameron Kelly missed three. But I think it is an interesting point when you look at um, college football as a whole, like Alabama beats Ole Miss 63-48. Um, and LSU defense, even though LSU is having a, a, a very weird year after winning the national championship, they're giving up like 45 points to Missouri, where I think it is fair to question what a lack of spring ball and what a uh, broken up summer kind of did for defenses as a whole in college football, where every game you might as well just put your life savings on the over because points points are coming and points are coming fast. But if there is anybody who can get it turned around in Chapel Hill, I think it would be a defensive coordinator like Jay Bateman. Like I mentioned, I think he's putting people in the right spot. Carolina's defense started that game off well. It's something where they're going to have to recruit their way out of this. And um, I think that's really, really the only way out of this uh, defensive depth issue is recruiting your way and hoping that you get guys like Raymond Vahasic and Storm Duck back this year to kind of bridge the gap in between that. But like I mentioned before, I think this offense is good enough where the defense just has to be timely. They don't have to do anything too crazy. They don't have to play Superman in games. Just try to win these shootouts and uh, hope hope you make enough uh, stops. But Mike, I want to get back to offense and talking with you for a second. The running backs for Carolina were so good that Sam Howell completing nearly 80% of his passes for 257 yards becomes almost an afterthought for this game, which is crazy to say. What did you see from Howell and kind of the game plan that Longo had in place for him to think that the true freshman we saw last year is back and here to stay for Carolina? Well, I mean, it was a relatively pedestrian day for – for a Sam Howell that you're expect, you know, who threw whatever, 36, 38 touchdowns last year and only a handful of interceptions. He's been on a three to three ratio coming into this game, right? Three touchdowns to three interceptions. He got hosed on one. Uh, I believe it was to, it might've been a Michael Carter it actually counted as a backwards pass. So it was really just a rushing touchdown. Yeah. Um, so Sam should have, in all fairness, probably should have had one more uh, passing touchdown this, uh, this weekend against tech than he got credit for. But, um, you know, Sam looked – he looked poised. Um, he, he looks like he's a lot more patient than he was last year. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? He's a year smarter. He's a year more seasoned. Um, he, he's got, you know, all of that experience from last year under his belt. Last year he was out there slinging it around like he was Brett Favre. Um, this year he seems to be picking his spots a little better. Um, and he's trying to – he's trying to be a smarter quarterback and a more efficient quarterback. Now, I think Sam, you know, his numbers at 257 – right, are not 257 yards passing for this game are not nearly what they could have been. Um, Virginia Tech did an incredible job of keeping our offense off the field in the second half. Um, Sam, I think at one point uh, there, was a, there was a graphic on ABC uh, when, when the offense finally came back on, on the field. Sam had thrown two passes at that point in the whole second half, and we we're three or four minutes left in the third quarter. Um, so that offense just didn't get the ball in the second half. You know, Credit to Virginia Tech, a timely, uh, you know, uh, a, a timely um, surprise onside, um, and then they convert. You know, Hendon Hooker throws 
uh, seven completions, I think, and three of them were for touchdowns, right? I mean, they were just – they were efficient. They were churning the ball on offense um, when they had the ball, and they were wearing our defense down thin um, for the whole second half. So Sam just didn't have the opportunities to throw the ball uh, in the second half as much as you'd like to see. And then, obviously, the last drive we got down near the goal line, that would have been a perfect opportunity – um, you know, for a, you know, some, some type of, some type of wide delay or a boot or something to get Sam another passing touchdown, a couple more seven, eight, nine, ten passing yards. And we just didn't do it because Mac Brown's a class act. Um, I would have ran it Sam up was for, for what it's worth. I would have ran it up. Yeah. I, and, and, and I, after Dax Holofield, who, uh, I, you know, I don't hold anything against him, the Peyton Wilson kid over at NC state, I got something against, um, cause he drank the Kool-Aid from the minute he decommitted and went over to the state. Dax just chose a different school. Um, I, I didn't, I never had a problem with that. I did sort of have a problem with, with him trying to take Sam out there at the end of the game when we were trying to take a knee, but you know, uh, to each his own, I guess. Um, but Sam didn't have the stats that he could have had just because he didn't have the opportunities to throw the ball in the second half, um, that I think we would have expected because Virginia Tech actually stole a possession or two in the second half that should have been Carolina's. So I think he just looks more poised. I think he's more confident in the pocket. He's trying to be a smarter, more efficient quarterback as opposed to a stat patter. Um, he's trying to win games um, as opposed to just outscore and, and get into these shootouts. He's trying to actually win games and be methodical and be cerebral about it. You can see him working through his process. He understands his checkdowns better. He understands his reads better this year. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with what I see so far, but I am waiting to see – you know, the lighted up Sam Howell that we did see last year. I think he's due. Hopefully Florida State's maybe that coming out party. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. On May 23rd... I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. Mike, I saw there was this one moment in the game where I, I wanted to kind of pin it and remind myself to ask you, so I'm glad I just remembered this. When Sam Howell takes the cheap shot from Virginia Tech, you have a guy like Jordan Tucker who's in Virginia Tech's players' faces ready to, you know, ready to kill for his quarterback. And I think that's because you have a guy like Sam Howell who the team really looks up to as a leader and he's always the first person who, when he has a good game, he's going to bring the praise right back to the offensive line when they're not going to be the ones getting praise from people talking outside of people like you in the building. And you have a guy like Michael Carter in that building too when he's talking about, you know, people are telling him he's part of the best running back duo. He's like, you know what, I have a great offensive line. So as an offensive lineman, you're going to go out there and obviously play your hardest, but is there any extra motivation when you have players like Sam Howell and like Michael Carter who are not only great football players but just great people in the locker room? How much does that kind of help out a locker room? Um, I mean, immensely, um, and you know that. EJ knows that. Players know that. 
fans may not really understand what that leadership factor really brings to the table in terms of team camaraderie. Um, you know, there's, um, there's very few players that I ever played with that I was willing to run through a wall for. I had some at the pro level. I had some in college. I had some in high school. Um, I can say that um, TJ Yates was one of those guys for me. Sean Drone was one of those guys for me. Anthony LZ was one of those guys um, that I played with. Um, there are just some guys that you play with where um, it's, it's like a big – I don't want to say big brother, little brother thing, but it is, a, it is a true brotherhood type of situation. And Sam has cultivated that amongst his offensive personnel. Um, you, you're right. Jordan Tucker was in guys' faces. That offensive line was ready to throw down, um, as well they should be. Um, you know, your quarterback is your guy, and you need to protect him at all costs. Um, there's been very few situations in my playing career where I've had a quarterback um, who I thought, you know, think back to the movie Any Given Sunday, right? When, when Billy Beeman's talking about his invisible juice and his offensive line turns on him and lets him get crushed for a whole game. That stuff actually happens. Um, you know, guys won't make it as obvious as it was in that movie. Oliver Stone did his best to, you know, try and make football seem as real as possible. It's not as obvious as that, but um, – guys are always out there trying to get theirs and play the best they can. But, you know, if, if I had a quarterback once in a while that I played with, and this did happen, um, who might've got lit up a little, um, you know, maybe we don't go over and we, you know, we help them up as fast, or, you know, maybe we don't pat them on the helmet and say, Hey, may no get it next time. Um, as opposed to what you saw, like you just brought up from Jordan Tucker and those guys in people's faces, ready to throw down, you know, ready to go to war for, for their quarterback. Um, running backs, same thing, right? Offensive linemen feel the same way about their running backs. Um, you know, those guys need to make, you know, if we, if, we make, if we make them look good, they'll make us look good. And if we're making each other look good, then the offense is going to be humming and everything's going to be going according to plan um, and we're going to be successful. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that. I'll give one, one quick story. Um, EJ will appreciate this story. Uh, we were playing Rutgers in 2010 up at Rutgers. We get to the end of the game. Greg Schiano's the head coach. Remember him, him EJ? Um, Greg Schiano's the head coach. Yeah, yeah, awesome guy. Um, we get to the end of the game. We're running victory formation. Greg had this thing that we later found out was called fumble. It was an actual play where he would line up um, – uh, basically two nose tackles, two defensive tackles on either shoulder of the center. And their job during victory formation was to blow up the center's shoulders off the snap. The thought being that the, that the snap would be short, it would hit the center's butt, we'd fumble the snap. And at the same time, simultaneous with those shoulders getting blown up, they would wrap the middle linebacker right down the middle and he would recover the fumble. Rutgers, the theory then, Tampa later we found out um, that he tried to implement, if you remember the old Tom Coughlin, Greg Schiano spat at uh at midfield after the giants game in 2011 or 2012 um that's what that was about um the idea was you get the ball one more time and you get one more possession well Rutgers did that to us in 2010 up at, up uh, up in piscataway and i remember coming i remember seeing it happen and tj almost broke his foot on that play and i remember i remember uh me and Alan Pelk both coming down the line and ear hole in the defensive tackles um, that had just blown up. I believe it was Cam Holland was playing center, had just blown Cam up. Um, and we started throwing punches under the pile. Um, those guys were looking up at us, much like Roy Miller looked up at, at, a, at a couple people a few times when he had to do this in Tampa um, and apologized. Said, hey, man, it's not me. It's you know, not, not my fault. I was told to do it. Um, and at that point, we understood that it was a – it wasn't Rutgers personnel trying to play dirty. It was just something their coaches had taught them. But that sort of stuff exists, right? Um, we, had that, we had that love for TJ. And, um, 
um, it's important. And I think it's a great point that you bring up that it's clear that Carolina's offense today has that love for Sam and for those running backs. Yeah, I think it's a combination of just high character guys like Sam Howell, like Michael Carter. Um, every press conference Michael Carter has, I it's must watch for me just because of how positive he is. And, you know, just, just the energy he kind of puts out um, just being such a positive person. And I think it's also a combination of this is a team where a large part of them, they went through five wins in two seasons. So they've, they've been through the lows and now they're going through the highs together. And it's something where you could tell how tight this team is and it, it's not something that can be broken up easily. And I think it also speaks to uh, kind of the culture that Mac Brown is building here where it, it is a family. It, like it's it's cliche to say that a locker room is a family but when you see when you see a guy like Sam Howell taking a cheap shot and Jordan Tucker running up that's that's where you're seeing that family aspect come into play and um before Saturday this had been a series the Hokies had dominated moving forward EJ do you think this is the new norm for the series with Carolina coming out on top at the end I hope so. I mean, I, I saw this as a trend. I thought that was kind of once we went down in 2009 and, and beat them there, I knew that things were kind of changing. I knew that they were starting to look at our program a little bit differently. I mean, and you fast forward to now some of the, the epic battles that we've had. I mean, going down and, and beating them at home during Frank Beamer's last game. I mean, some of the things that have gone on in, in, in recruiting that some people know about, some people may not know about, but it's a it's the dirty dirty game you got to play dirty to win it and but no I, I do think that this is going to be the new trend I, I think that and, and when, when we were playing Virginia Tech was the team to be in the ACC they were consistently going to ACC championship games representing us in the Orange Bowl and I think we kind of put that chip on our shoulder and passed that attitude down to this team now that said hey we're, we're the new kids on the block in the ACC we're going to be the ones that are going to be playing in those championship games so I, I do think it is. I think the way we're recruiting, I think the way uh, Coach Brown has kind of infused energy into that program and just the, the talent that we have coming in, I do think this is going to be the new norm. I mean, it's it's. I, I, I hate to say this, no discredit to, to Coach Fuente, but this is not Coach Beamer's Hokies. I mean, even talking to some people in Virginia and Virginia Tech alum, they don't look at this program the same way. I mean, they honestly don't even call that defense – the, uh, the the lunch pail defense anymore. I mean, it's, it's it's just a different attitude around that program. So I do think that we need to come out. We need to be the aggressor. And if we set the tone in the beginning of the game like we did this game, I, I think that the programs become front runners. Even though they did fight back a little bit, we were still able to get three touchdown leads on them a couple of times. So I mean, hopefully this is the new norm. This well, will be the only new norm I welcome. <laughs> and we've always had rosters full of tidewater area guys, right? I mean, we've always had some of the Hampton area, Virginia guys, um, you know, our roster, I mean, you're from Virginia, right? We, Carolina has always recruited Virginia very well. Ronald Curry, uh, Lawrence Taylor, those types of guys, and they all come from that same area. And that's the area that Virginia Tech always recruits the hardest. Um, and those games that we always played, I mean, it, you're talking, think back to, you know, I wasn't there, but I was in high school. I remember watching it, the night game, 2005, your freshman year, EJ. Um, that was a close game. Uh, you know, remember Jesse Holly drops that ball right going in the half time to give Carolina the lead that was a tight game that whole that whole game um you know we had 2008 was a tight game that was at home 2009 we obviously beat them 2010 was a tight game for most of the game until we made some mistakes in the second half and it got away from us um but those have and 2011 another one Ryan Houston 
um, uh, in the snow game. Uh, I think we had a fumble on the goal line there. 2007 was a fumble on the goal line um, that we should have recovered. And Garrett Reynolds almost recovered in the end zone. So they've always been very tightly played games between us and Virginia Tech. And the one thing that I've always told people is that um, those – the, the, the guys that played at Virginia Tech, and I had some guys from my high school that I played with in high school that, you know, here in Charlotte that went up to Tech and we played against each other in college. Um, but the guys that, were, that played at Tech were always cool. Like there was, it was a rivalry and there was a lot of, there was a lot of talking and John during the games, but it was always respectful. Like there was always a mutual respect there. Um, that was not something that we had with some other teams, State, Virginia. I mean, that Tennessee bowl game in 2010 comes to mind. Um, you know, there's some teams that like you just don't have that, level of respect with um but virginia tech those guys were always cool it was always a tight game always hard fought and there was a lot of mutual respect on both sides at least that's what i felt and i think that our rosters being so uh, being so similar tech recruits charlotte very well we recruit the tidewater area very well to have the mixture between the two states i think made us uh much more parallel in terms of not necessarily programs or program trajectory because ej hit the nail on the head Virginia Tech was the team to beat in the ACC. They were consistently going to ACC championship games. We were, we were looking up at them at all times. We were the little brother. Um, but in terms of actual legitimate rivalries, I always viewed Virginia Tech as more of a rivalry than maybe some of our traditional ones, um, you know, maybe more of our traditional geographic or conference-aligned um, rivalries were um, historically right? Um, just because those games were always so tight, they really did fit the definition of a rivalry in terms of one team successful, then the next is successful, and you guys are so closely mirrored in terms of philosophy and personnel and things like that. I always pictured, I always viewed Virginia Tech as more of a rivalry than I think it got credit for. Yeah, outside of NC State, I, for me personally, from when I was playing, I would say Virginia Tech was that number two team that I kind of looked at as the rival. And Speaking of NC State, this this game, it kind of reminded me of the NC State game from last year where Carolina is already winning the recruiting battles. And now we're seeing those wins on the recruiting battles now translate to wins on the field. And That's I a great think, point. I think this is, if you're looking for a turning point in a series, I think this is where you could look at a turning point like last year's NC State game where Carolina has the chance to leave a team like Virginia Tech, leave a team like NC State in the rearview mirror when they're chasing, um, you know, right now they're competing with Virginia Tech, but Carolina wants to get to a point where they're competing with Clemson. I think this is the moment where you could kind of leave them in the past because Carolina's recruiting. um, I think they're somewhere in the top 15, the past two classes, Virginia Tech in this class alone, they're in like the seventies, which is kind of unprecedented for them. And what, what Frank Beamer built there for 29, 30 years. Fuente, this is, this is where coaching matters, I think. Fuente, I think he's kind of in over his head kind of the same way Dave Doran looks like he's in over his head at NC State, where if you're a Carolina fan, you want these guys at those schools for as long as possible while you have a guy like Mac Brown so you could continue to build that gap in between these schools. Um, but – leads to an, a natural segue talking about teams that have fallen off. Carolina going to Tallahassee this week to play Florida State. Um, Carolina's first time there since 2016 when Nick Weiler made the um, amazing field goal, chopped his way around the field exactly. Uh, if you're Carolina, how do you avoid the trap of reading your own press clippings? Right now Carolina's 
number five in the AP poll. Uh, how do you avoid reading your press clippings of people telling you how great you are and prepare for a team that has been underwhelming in recent history, Mike? Well, I mean, Carolina needs to be realistic, right? They, are, they have been benefited, and we talked about this last week. They've been benefited tremendously from the fact that the Big Ten schools weren't initially ranked, the Pac-12 schools weren't initially ranked. I mean, we are playing great football right now. We have a, we have a very talented – we're playing good, good football. Um, we're playing good football right now. We have a very talented roster. Um, it's, again, like EJ pointed out, not as deep on the defensive side as we thought it would be. But we've got a, a terrific quarterback. We have an offensive system that will just put up points and churn up yards. Um, you know, and we, I think we're in a position where we can play with most anybody. Um, but we are not Ohio State. And the fact that Ohio State is ranked one spot behind us is only because Ohio State hasn't played any games. Their first game for the Big Ten is on October 24th. Sunday, October 25th, Ohio State is most likely going to leapfrog Carolina whether we continue to win or not. I mean, that's just the natural order of things. Um, now, Carolina keeps winning, right? I mean, who knows, who knows what's going to happen? Because, again, we did benefit from a preseason 18 ranking. Uh, we shot up to number eight, again, because we had some teams losing in front of us, wonky offseason, teams like Oklahoma, you know, drug dropping two games that you don't expect to happen and guys in front of you, you know, teams in front of you losing, losing. This is sort of the recipe for um, some quick success some quick confidence to be built and to shoot up the rankings and put yourself in a position to really be in contention for the college football playoff. Um, but certainly for the conference, Carolina, you know, should be favored in every game leading up to the Notre Dame game, you know, and they close the season out. They got Notre Dame and Miami back to back. Those are going to be two really tough games. Um, if they win one of those games or split one of them, I think Carolina, the way the season will likely shake out, will most likely still have an opportunity to be in that ACC championship game. Um, if it comes down to Carolina and Notre Dame, they're going to have to beat Notre Dame to have that tiebreaker. It's just how it's going to have to be. But I can foresee Notre Dame dropping a game this year. Um, what happens when you go down to Florida State now? I mean, I had a, I had a conversation with somebody today, a, a Carolina alum, someone I went to school with, um, and my point to them was this might be the worst Florida State team I've ever seen. The second worst Florida State team, 2009 with Bobby Bowden. And we lost to them on Thursday night at home, and we were ranked, and we were substantially better. I think we had a 24-point lead at halftime. Um, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it, I mean, the game was gone. We were running the ball down their throat. We were doing whatever we wanted offensively. And then the second half, we were the reason Christian Ponder got drafted in the first round. And we somehow ended up losing that game. Um, this is a trap game for Carolina, just like that was a trap game for us. First Thursday night game in Chapel Hill, all Navy uniforms. Lawrence Taylor's first time back in Chapel Hill since he left in the 80s. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the hype was very real back then. And we ended up dropping an egg. Carolina has an opportunity here to keep the momentum going. And Florida State, when I say they're the worst Florida State team I think I've seen in recent memory, maybe ever, um, they still drop, what was it, 26 points on Notre Dame? And Notre Dame's a good football team. I mean, they're a really good football team. They are ranked, frankly, where I think they should be, or at least within two or three spots. Um, so uh, Carolina's got to do everything they can to – 
stay humble, understand the circumstances that got them to where they are in terms of the rankings. Also, don't pay attention to the rankings because the only thing they should care about right now is beating Florida State and winning the games they're favored in. And frankly, getting to that Notre Dame at the end of the season unscathed, right? To have a shot at that ACC championship because in order to do the things that they want to do this season, right? In order to take that next step, they're going to have to, they're going to have to see Clemson again for the second time in five years in that ACC championship game. It's just going to have to happen. And anything short of that, right, should feel like a failure to these guys because this team is, on the offensive side of the ball, they're loaded. Um, and the only way they're going to lose is if they beat themselves. So, you know, this, this is a trap game because Florida State has a little more confidence coming out of South Bend. They played a decent game. Um, uh, how, is Florida State winless or do they have one win? I believe they have one win. It was a, it was a, I, well, I watched this game. It was. They lost to Jacksonville State. Did they beat Georgia no, they, Tech? Or? They, they did beat Jacksonville State. They beat, they that's it. They lost they, to Georgia they Tech. They won 41-24. They've lost okay. to Georgia Tech. They got blown out by Miami and they lost to Notre Dame. They, they had a big Florida comeback State win what, against Jacksonville State. Yeah, they, well, that's right. They were down. They were down. Um, so that Florida State is looking for an FU win. They're looking for something to get themselves back, back on track. And you know Mike Norville with, with his apparently terrible coaching philosophy and his inability to relate to his players and his coronavirus is down there right now telling those players that you can knock off Carolina. They're not that good. Just go turn on the tape. We're going to they're, – they're, going to blitz Carolina they're going to throw exotic looks at them and they're going to throw the offensive line off they're going to try to keep the ball as long as they can on offense and wear the defense down because that's the formula they've seen so far through three games to beat Carolina that's what's gotten us on our heels um, so to avoid a letdown Carolina's like you said they got to stay out of the press they got to not worry about the rankings the rankings are completely irrelevant the only rankings that matter are the college football playoff rankings and those haven't come out yet right so you need to just go ahead and play ball and you need to win as many games as possible until you get to that towards the end of the season here. So you can put yourself in a position to be in that AC championship game. And it starts with going down to Tallahassee and stealing another one in Tallahassee, which, you know, would be the third time ever. Um, but it would also be the third time in the last three trips, right? Because 2010, 2016, we hadn't been back down there before 2016. Right. And now 2020. So we're looking at the last three trips to Tallahassee after having never be beaten uh, Florida State in Tallahassee are wins for Carolina. That would be huge. Um, and that's the kind of thing they're going to need to um, – they're going to need to focus on um, taking this one game at a time and just beating Florida State um, if they're going to remain successful. It's really just staying down to earth. DJ, before you answer how you would kind of handle it as a player um, – I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I think it is harder to fall for the trap game when you have a large group of guys that remember what the locker room is like after five wins in two years. And for this week for Carolina's offense, it's how I would kind of handle it. It's can you prove it again? And the defense, they're going to want to get it back. They're going to want to get back out there after having a, a pretty bad taste in their mouth where everybody this week is talking about how great the offense is and, how you guys are a big question mark with key players out. But EJ, as a, as a former player, how would you kind of handle being in the locker room this week when everybody's telling you how great you are and you have an underwhelming Florida State team next on your schedule? I think kind of to build on you guys' points, I mean, 
this isn't one of the better Florida State teams, but it still is a good program. I mean, no matter – I mean, some of the teams that they played, Miami's a, a, having a good season, a great season this year. Yeah, they routed them, but as Mike mentioned, they did hang in there with Notre Dame. So, if I'm a player and, and, and I'm going in, I'm, I'm the eight-ranked team, it's all, almost completely reversed of what's usually the situation when we go down to Florida State. I mean, they're perennially – probably a few years removed, they're usually a top 10, at least top 15 ranked team. And we're usually going down here and we're trying to blow this prize. We're trying to trying to kill their momentum of their hopes of playing for, for a national championship when honestly, realistically, no matter how janky the rankings may be, we still legitimately have a chance to play for that college football playoff and for a national championship this year. So I think the guys need to have the attitude. I know I personally would have the attitude of, just like Mike mentioned, I mean, this is a chance to get a very rare thing in Carolina history. It doesn't matter if this team is is, is facing suspensions, if they got in a death, death penalty like SMU did. It's a chance to leave your mark on Carolina history. And as a college football player, your, your, your mindset should be to go out there every day to try to make make a change and make your name recognizable. As, as Mike mentioned, there are Lawrence Taylor's, Julius Peppers. There, there are a lot of great names that play football here. Wouldn't you want your name etched in history with them? When, when, when we have, when, if we ever redo the Hall of Honor, would you want to be up there near one of the, the greatest home victories when we were in the rank in the top 10, we went down to Florida State and did something that we ever did? The talk, but 20 years later, the, the conversation behind that is not going to be, oh, well, Florida State was down. They were having a good year. It's going to be this team went down to Tallahassee and had an impressive win against a perennial ACC and national powerhouse on their way to hopefully ACC your national championship, something that's never – the ACC championship, something never happened in about 50 years of Carolina and a national championship, something that's never happened. So that will be my mindset. I always – I mean, especially for me playing defensive line in Carolina, I mean – I played there and got and got drafted and look at the other guys I played with. I am a, I am admittedly I also ran when compared to those guys and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed about that at all. So I, you want to do anything you can to make an impact and I think this this needs to be their mindset. They need to not fall for the trap. They need to know that hey, we need to go down here and make a statement to show that we can win on the road, to show that we can put a complete game together. One point I'll cl- I'll uh, close out on. Uh, Carolina heads down to Doak Campbell this Saturday. Last time Carolina went down there, FSU had won 14 straight at home against Power 5 teams until Weiler's kick. They're 99 cents. Was that the kick that broke Florida State? <laughs> 7 p.m. kickoff on ESPN. Carolina versus Florida State. Looking forward to breaking it down with you guys next week. Thank you, man. Thanks, Vip. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.